I'm watching Obstruction of Justice in action. You have the White House asserting absolute immunity, which is not a thing. It doesn't exist. Oh, it does now. Now it's a thing. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, in Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM950, KTNF, amongst other fine terrestrial affiliates. Thanks all. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe on the Internet affiliates on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Detour Talk, and Deprogrammed Radio, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com, here with my trusty sidekick and boss, Desi Doyen. <laughs> Hello, Desiree. Hello. Coming up, uh, after a long absence from the Bradcast, what seems like a long absence, to let him rest up for SCOTUS season, we will be joined by Mark Joseph Stern. He will uh, be here from Slate.com to help us try to make sense of the first group of Supreme Court rulings issued at the end of the term earlier this week on gerrymandering in Virginia, double jeopardy in the U.S. Constitution, and another dumb, bigoted cake baker case. Oh, goody. More of that. Yes. And uh, also, we'll get a preview of what lies ahead as... SCOTUS opinion season continues in a flurry over the next week or two, along with everything else, before the justices scatter for their summer vacations. But first, and I promise this will be very quick. Uh, You're welcome. Donald Trump held a rally in Orlando, Florida on Tuesday night to launch his reelection campaign. The biggest surprise, I thought he had launched that campaign long ago. Like, literally the day after he was sworn in. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. And he's launched it at several different rallies since then. But this is supposed to be the formal super official launch. Yeah. Well, remember when, when Republicans and, and Fox News used to complain that Obama was holding what they saw to be campaign rallies? Campaign remember style that? rallies. It was it was a, an abomination. Right. And they said, the campaign's over. He should be governing instead. Well, they... Uh, They weren't actually campaign rallies that uh, Obama was holding. They were rallies for various policies that he was promoting, like the Affordable Care Act. But Trump has literally been holding campaign rallies from day one. 
And, of course, not a peep out of the hypocritical, very same Republicans who complained about Obama. Go figure. So, I'm, anyway, I'm not going to bother uh, covering his, you know, yet another campaign rally last night in Florida, which featured all of the usual repeated lies, one after another after another, to his cheering brain-dead, brain-poisoned fans, and they really are brain-poisoned. Here's, uh, just to give you an idea, uh, CNN was speaking with some folks in a retirement village in Orlando near where the rally was, who were all big supporters for some reason of Donald Trump. Uh, here was one exchange between a CNN reporter and one of the retirees there. Do you worry that uh, President Trump's uh, divisiveness... Uh, his lies well, is going to hurt him in the in the long run. I don't think so because I you can't you'd have to tell me what he's lied about first of all. I don't think he's lied about anything. And as far as <laughs> you device, don't think he's lied about anything, no. So, well, I mean, even if you're a supporter of Donald Trump, surely you know he's a big, fat, huge liar, but you like him anyway, right? Because you know you're a racist or whatever. I mean. I, so this guy apparently does not think that Donald Trump has lied about it. He might uh, go over to the Washington Post database, which has over 10,000, literally 10,000 documented lies by Donald Trump since becoming president. But, you know, that's not what Fox News talks about. They are brain poisoned by Fox News and right wing media propaganda. They don't they don't hear those facts. They don't hear facts. Yeah, At it's, all. it's amazing. They do hear the lies and they're not. Uh, apparently, they don't do much fact checking over there at Fox. But I do want to share just one clip from the actual rally because it, it actually likely underscores a lot of what Republicans will be running on this year against Democrats. Vox.com's Aaron Rupar uh, did try to document all of Trump's rally nonsense last night on Twitter with a bunch of video clips, including this this clip that he pulled this and this observation from Orlando. Go ahead and play the first part of this, Des. Republicans do not believe in socialism. We believe in freedom. And so do you. <laughs> Okay, so apparently socialism is not freedom. They believe in freedom, not in socialism. And then, literally, as Rupar notes, in the literally in the next breath, and play keep keep start from the beginning and play the whole thing, just so you can see that these are not edited. This is how Donald Trump announced this last night at the rally. Republicans do not believe in socialism. We believe in freedom, and so do you. We will defend Medicare and Social Security for our great seniors. We will defend it like nobody else. So they don't believe in socialism, but we will defend Social Security and Medicare. The two most successful socialist, socialist policies. policies. Yes. One uh, literally seconds later. So uh, that's the kind of nonsense that, unfortunately, America is going to be poisoned with over the next 16 or 17 months as we head towards the presidential election. So I just wanted to let you know, yeah, that you, that's the kind of nonsense you can look forward to. Those idiots. Anyway, uh, we had a great conversation yesterday on the broadcast with former Deputy Assistant Attorney General at the DOJ and former Senior Counsel at the uh, of the U.S. Senate and former Deputy Chief of 
the U.S. courts, I believe. Lisa Graves of Documented Investigations about Trump's obstruction of the investigation into Trump's obstruction of the investigation into Trump's obstruction of the investigation into the Russian interference in the 2016 election and his campaign's hundreds of contacts that they lied about with Russia, etc., all laid out in great detail in Robert Mueller's special counsel report, which I'm sure that old guy in Florida may not have even heard about, other than to hear it totally exonerated Donald Trump, which it did not. Anyway, you can download my conversation with Lisa Graves for free at bradblog.com. Thanks to those uh, generous listeners who support our work via bradblog.com slash donate. Anyway, today we've got yet another example of the Trump administration's active obstruction of absolutely everything. It was not just obstruction of the uh, investigation of Russia. They are still doing the obstruction. As you may have heard, a former administration official finally showed up to testify in a House Judiciary Committee hearing today after previous attempts to subpoena folks like former White House counsel Don McGahn was blocked by the White House uh, and their claims of executive privilege, which we talked about with Lisa Graves yesterday. Uh, those claims are being challenged, but it all for now has effectively delayed McGahn's appearance to discuss the many instances of criminal obstruction of justice by Trump that McGahn details as a witness in the Mueller report. But today, finally, a former White House official showed up on Capitol Hill after agreeing only to testify behind closed doors. Okay, so Hope Hicks, who is now a private citizen after years of working as an aide for Trump before his campaign, during the campaign, she served as press secretary during the transition and then for several years in the White House itself as communications director there. She is also cited more than 180 times in Mueller's report on Russian interference and obstruction of justice by Trump. Well, she showed up for her hearing today on Capitol Hill, but according to reports out of the committee room this afternoon, that was just about all she did. As Washington Post reports, while the hearing was still underway on Wednesday, the White House is barring a former top aide to President Trump from answering dozens of questions about her time in the administration, angering House Democrats and raising the prospect of lawmakers asking the courts to settle the issue. During her closed-door interview with the House Judiciary Committee on Wednesday, a White House attorney and Justice Department lawyer kept Hope Hicks from answering questions about her tenure in the West Wing, claiming immunity for the executive branch, even though Hicks is now a private citizen. She works for, by the way, Fox News, you'll be shocked to learn, where there's a pretty fast revolving door between Fox and the White House these days. In a letter, according to AP, to Judiciary Chair Jerry Nadler, the White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, who now has Don McGahn's job, wrote that Trump had directed Hicks to not answer questions, quote, relating to the time of her service as a senior advisor to the president. Cipollone said Hicks, as one of Trump's former senior advisors, is, quote, absolutely immune, unquote, from compelled testimony with respect to her service to the president because of the separation of powers between the executive and legislative branches. 
Democrats, of course, immediately countered the attorney's uh, assertions. Uh, they said that uh, this so-called absolute immunity assertion was made up. There is no such thing. They accused the White House of trying to stonewall their investigations with this new privilege assertion that doesn't exist. There is, in fact, no such thing as an immunity privilege. As we noted uh, in my uh, conversation with Lisa Graves yesterday, there really isn't much of an executive privilege either. That's also kind of made up, though it has been recognized in a very limited way by the courts over the years. So with a likelihood that courts would scoff, I guess, at the use of executive privilege here for someone who no longer works at the White House, who already waived any ability to assert that privilege in any event when Hope Hicks was allowed to speak to Robert Mueller about Trump's various crimes that she witnessed. The White House and, and Trump's DOJ now seem to be making up this new privilege that they are calling immunity. It's kind of incredible. Yeah, uh, Representative Ted Lieu of California came out in a House hallway and said pretty much exactly the same thing. I'm watching obstruction of justice in action. You have the White House asserting absolute immunity, which is not a thing. It doesn't exist. And you have to ask the question, what are they trying to hide from the American people? Even something as simple as, where is your office located? Objection. So we're going to go to court, we're going to win, and then we're just going to make Hope Hips come back again and actually answer the questions during her tenure in the White House. Yeah, well, good luck. <laughs> so they're watching obstruction of justice in action, according to Ted Lieu. You sure you're not ready to begin impeachment hearings, Miss Pelosi? Let's see. Committee member uh, Karen Bass of California says that uh, Hope's, uh, Hope Hicks was objecting to stuff that's already in the public record. She said it's pretty ridiculous. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Washington called her answers, called Hicks's answers, quote, a farce. Noting that at one point Hicks started to answer a question and the lawyers jumped in. Basically, she can say her name, Jayapal said, and that's it. As Hicks spoke to the lawmakers, Trump tweeted that the investigation is, quote, extreme presidential harassment, which is also something that is not a thing that is completely made up. But it works great among uh, among uh, Trump and the Republicans with their pretend sense of victimhood. You heard Congressman Ted Lieu there of California. Uh, he also took to Twitter trying to paint a picture of what was going on. He said, this is what it's like for the interview of Hope Hicks. He said the questions were modified, but you get the point. The chairman, Ms. Hicks, was it a sunny day on your first day of work? Ridiculous DOJ attorney. Objection! The chair asks, where was your office located? The ridiculous DOJ attorney. Objection! So that's kind of what went on at this thing today. CNN's Manu Raju uh, reports uh, via Twitter that he had uh, asked Nancy Pelosi about White House, uh, the White House saying that Hope Hicks should not answer questions about her time at the White House. And apparently Pelosi said, obstruction of justice, and then walked to the elevator. Gosh, only if there was something she could do about that obstruction of justice. Nonetheless, this uh, session was a uh, bit of a breakthrough for Democrats in that it was their first interview with a former White House official since Trump started asserting executive privilege to bar current and former aides cooperation. Before the hearing, Democrats laid out topics that they had hoped to ask her about, including Trump's firing of the FBI director, Jim Comey, 
uh, his feelings towards former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, his, feel, his attitude towards uh, former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, all material that would be helpful in determining if obstruction of justice charges are warranted in any articles of impeachment that could be filed as per Congress's constitutional mandate to hold the president accountable for criminal violations of law. Committee member uh, David uh, Cicilline said uh, her refusal to answer questions is based on this very bogus immunity, sort of newly invented, very broad immunity that you can never be asked anything about anything you ever did while you worked for the president, which is an absurdity. He also added this will be decided by a court. Hicks, however, did answer some questions, apparently, about her time on the campaign, including topics like Russian interference and WikiLeaks uh, references that were made during meetings uh, before Trump was in the White House. Cicilline said she was asked about the president's alleged relationship with Playboy model Karen McDougal, though he did not uh, say how she answered. And frankly, I'm glad to hear that because Hicks was involved in responding to news articles about some of these uh, some of these crimes uh, in Trump world, including those hush money payoffs that Democrats and federal prosecutors say constituted campaign finance violations. And it's not just Democrats and federal prosecutors, Washington Post. It's also the guy serving time in federal prison for that campaign finance violation right now. That would be Michael Cohen. I have been stunned by how little attention this particular scandal has received totally apart from the Mueller report that Trump violated campaign finance laws in a criminal conspiracy to pay unreported hush money to Playboy model Karen McDougal and porn star Stormy Daniels to keep them quiet about affairs that he had with them just before the election. This is a conspiracy which prosecutors and Michael Cohen, who is now in prison for his part in that conspiracy, both say was directed by Donald Trump, who then subsequently paid money to Michael Cohen while Trump was in the White House to keep him quiet about all of this. That was a payoff that was made while Trump was president to cover up an illicit campaign finance felony. That alone seems to me to be grounds for impeachment. Both the campaign finance felony before he was elected and the cover-up payments thereafter as president. In truth, no more investigation is really needed on that. They could file articles of impeachment tomorrow on that, and they should. That certainly uh, would have been done by now had Barack Obama been implicated in anything even close to a hush money payoff to a paramour and cover up pay, uh, payouts out of the White House to cover up a scandal like that. But for some reason, that's mostly ignored and I don't really get it. Uh, anyway, though she only agreed to testify behind closed doors, uh, Dems were able to secure an agreement that would allow the transcript of the hearing of the things she was willing to answer to be released in the next couple of days. So we'll see if anything new was learned there. Uh, very quickly then, before we get to Mark Joseph Stern, Desi Doyen, a story I know has been driving you nuts all day, the uh, Trump administration on Wednesday, completed one of its biggest rollbacks of environmental rules, replacing a landmark Obama-era effort that sought to wean the nation's electrical grid off of coal-fired power plants. 
and their climate-damaging pollution. The EPA chief, Andrew Wheeler, a former coal industry lobbyist, I guess we should put former in quotes, <laughs> signed a uh, replacement rule today that gives states leeway in deciding whether to require efficiency upgrades at existing coal plants or not. That despite what AP notes in the very last sentence of its coverage today, by the way, that the, EA, the EPA's own analysis of this rule last year estimated that Trump's replacement rule would kill an extra 300 to 1,500 people each year due to additional uh, pollution from the power grid. So... Make America Great Again apparently now includes killing as many as 1,500 Americans who did not have to die because Trump wants to please the dying, dirty, deadly coal industry. And again, those numbers are from EPA's own uh, analysis, their own admission that we will kill more people with this rule, but let's put it in place anyway. 1,500 Americans. If, if that many were killed, of course, each year by Muslim terrorists or immigrants, you think we might take any action to try to prevent it? Here, we're actually trying to cause it. And also what is bizarre about this new replacement for the Obama Clean Power Plan is that the U.S. power sector is already on track to cut its gas emissions by nearly as much as this plan has because they were already on the move going toward cheaper, cleaner forms of energy than coal. Meanwhile, that while he was telling the crowd in Orlando that American uh, water and air has never been cleaner, that's a lie as well, uh, as found right. by, yeah. Because in the last two years, yeah. new reports show that in the last two years, air pollution has gotten worse since Trump came into office. So he's both a liar and a killer who is willing to kill Americans and lie to them about it. Got it? Trump administration is also proposing that rollback to the Obama-era mileage standards, which, again, his own EPA has estimated will kill as many as 1,400 Americans a year, needlessly. All of this will be challenged by uh, environmentalists in court, etc., as the idiocy continues. No idiocy straight ahead with my guest, Mark Joseph Stern, who joins us to talk about well, yeah, I guess some of the idiotic rulings coming out of the U.S. Supreme Court this week. Don't go away. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. If I knew you were coming, I'd have baked the cake. Baked the cake. Baked a big fat cake. Yep. If I knew you was coming, I'd have baked the cake. How'd you do? How'd you do? How'd you do? How'd you do? Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Well, I would have baked a cake for our friend. Mark Joseph Stern of Slate, no matter what, but the fact that, uh, yes, discriminatory cake bakers 
is actually still news. It's actually still a thing coming out of the U.S. Supreme Court in 2019. That in itself is kind of remarkable to me. Uh, but uh, so it goes in the dumb, vacuous, dangerous, completely unnecessary Trump era. The high court, as we discussed on the broadcast on Monday, released the first of its expected major opinions this week as its term for the year wraps up or for this uh, session, I guess, wraps up in theory uh, in time for the uh, nine justices on the Republicans stolen majority court to get to their summer homes by early July. So there's a lot of decisions ahead of the three major findings released on Monday. A ruling on gerrymandering was the most encouraging. But even there, the verdict was less definitive than it might otherwise sound at first blush. And uh, it included what I described on Monday as some very strange bedfellows in its majority and dissenting opinions. As Mark Joseph Stern writes about that case this week, the Virginia House of Delegates racial gerrymandering is officially dead, killed off by a five to four Supreme Court ruling on Monday that seems to clear the way for a potential Democratic sweep of the Virginia legislature this November. The Commonwealth of Virginia, of course, holds off-year elections, so the entire House of Delegates will be up for grabs this November in Virginia, and for the first time since the GOP gerrymandered the hell out of the state following the 2010 census, there will actually be an election held on much fairer court-mandated maps now this year. So that is good news. In and of itself, it's excellent news, but the Supreme Court opinion was largely on technical grounds and the strange bedfellows found in the majority and minority opinions, as I noted on Monday, leads me to wonder if there's a bigger picture to try to make sense of here. Joining me now to help us try to make sense of those bigger pictures is, of course, the great Mark Joseph Stern, legal and court reporter for Slate.com. And now that it's SCOTUS decision, decision season again, also for us here at the broadcast, where we hope to be checking in with Mark over the next few weeks to make sense of these rulings that are expected to come down from the high court in the days and weeks ahead. Oh, Mr. Stern, it has been a while, but only because we were letting you rest up for opinion season. <laughs> well, I have missed you dearly, uh, but, you know, the court kind of goes dormant for a little while yep. in between the end of arguments and the beginning of the high SCOTUS season. We are in it now. We are in the thick of it. So it's time to do our thing. Now, there there was these three cases released on Monday, Mark, that I, 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 I there was a third one I didn't mention in the intro. We'll get to it regarding double jeopardy. And some strange bedfellows there as well. But I, I feel like Monday's first volley of Supreme Court decisions for this term was very much just a warm-up act for what may lie ahead. Do you get that sense as well, or am I over-worrying here, Mark? Well, they're clearing their docket of the mid-sized cases and trying to make sure they can all scurry out of town by the end of June uh, because they all have exotic travels coming up in July and lucrative teaching positions. Uh, and so these cases were, I think they were important. Mm -hmm. uh, They're uh, important to many, many people. Mm -hmm. Not the front page of the New York Times rulings that we'll get in a few days, uh, but they do matter a great deal. And, uh, you know, I think this is an instance of the justices not always dividing along partisan mm -hmm. lines uh, and kind of showing us that in these less 
blockbustery cases. There can be strange bedfellows. There can be odd alliances, and the justices can flex their sort of idiosyncratic muscles. Yeah, they they are important cases, but they seem to be the easier ones to at least some extent. Let's start with the with the dumb cake bake punt as i call it last year the uh, the court ruled not that a colorado cake baker was allowed to discriminate against a gay couple to whom he refused to sell a cake for their wedding but that the colorado civil rights commission displayed religious animus in their ruling against that cake baker. Now, I disagree with uh, the court's ruling there. I think you might as well. But in any event, the right immediately seized upon that verdict to pretend that the court said it was allowable for private businesses to discriminate against gay people. And now, in what seems to be an almost identical case out of Portland, Oregon, where I guess there are more bigots than I would have given them credit for, Another case, almost identical, it seems to me, was remanded back down to the lower court for review. Yes, that's exactly right. And this was a punt if I'd ever seen one. Um, You know, as you said, Masterpiece Cake Shop decided very little. It said, okay, well, this state commission that adjudicated the claims had anti-religious animus, which I don't think is really true. Mm -hmm. Some commissioners just noted that religion has been used to justify discrimination for a very long time, Mm -hmm. which is factually accurate. Regardless, the Supreme Court said you can't have that, sent the case back down. And so when it got this case on its docket, it's another cake case. It's the exact same setup. Same-sex couple wants a cake. Bakery says no because you're gay. Uh, The Supreme Court obviously didn't want to decide that much more important free speech issue about whether making a cake is speech. And so it, it sent this case back down to the lower court and said, take another look just to be absolutely sure that there's no evidence of religious animus in this, in this case. Now, I think that's a little silly, because there's not going to be more fact-finding. There's not going to be a trial or more evidence. All that's going to happen is the lower court's going to look at the same evidence it looked at last time and almost certainly come to the same decision. But it keeps this case off the Supreme Court's docket for a little while longer, and that's almost certainly what the justices were going for. Yeah, are, are, are the courts right-wingers here just trying to buy time with these cases at this point to try to come up with some sort of reason to approve of the actual discrimination? Well, I I think that you have a faction of conservatives, probably uh, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, Alito, uh, and Thomas, who want to say that anybody can turn away gays for any reason. The liberals don't want that. And Roberts is maybe unsure. He's sort of in the middle going Mm -hmm. back and forth. And so this seems like a compromise that was cooked up between all sides to say, look, Masterpiece Cake Shop is the law of the land, and eventually we will probably have to decide the free speech question. But until we do, we just want to affirm that we meant what we said in Masterpiece Cake Shop <laughs> uh, and screen out any possible evidence of religious animus in all of these other cases before they get to the heart of the matter and decide that free speech issue. Now, some of the coverage that I read on this case uh, notes that this means with uh, sending this back down for review, it means the case won't likely make its way back up to the uh, Supreme Court before next year when the uh, decisions next June will you know, be coming out right smack dab in the middle of the presidential election season so that avoids at least one hot 
button social issue in the middle of a presidential race. But there was another case that the court previously sent down that was similar in Washington state. That seems to involve a a florist who didn't want to make flowers for a Mm -hmm. gay wedding. And they said, hey, go review that under Masterpieces rules as well. They did. They said, yeah, there was no religious animus here involved. Might that case now come back up to the Supreme Court for uh, ruling next year to be decided in the middle of the presidential election? Absolutely. That's exactly right. This was decided a few weeks ago, and the Washington Supreme Court said exactly what we all knew it was going to say, which is same evidence, same deal. We find no proof of religious animus, so we're affirming our earlier decision. And now the lawyers for the florist in that case, whose name is Baronel Stutzman, uh, have already said they're going to go back up to the Supreme Court and say, hey, we want you guys to take this case and say that making flowers is speech uh, and rule for our clients. So the, the court can't dock this forever. It's coming back to them in one way or the other, whether it's cake or flowers or something else. I don't know, a makeup artist or a hairstylist. It's yeah. going to happen eventually. They're not going to be able to duck it forever. God, I can't wait to look back on this as the stupid years. Uh, it's, anyway, all right. So uh, more of a substance here, I guess, uh, for now. I mentioned the uh, the good news, that new, fairer, more competitive, non-racially gerrymandered court-ordered maps will now be in place for the first time in Virginia for, for their uh, statewide 2019 legislative elections uh, in November. Democrats finally hope to win back uh, one majorities in one or both chambers of the state legislature there. But uh, also that this was largely decided on technical grounds and included some very strange bedfellows in the majority and minority opinions. First, uh, Mark, can you explain the technical grounds, uh, the finding on standing here on which the court made their uh, made their ruling in this case? Yeah, and it's it's technical, but it's important. Basically, what happened here is in 2010 and 2011, the Virginia House of Delegates created a, a super racist gerrymander for its own seats and, and drew these districts that packed in a bunch of black voters because they were black, tried to dilute their votes elsewhere, and some voters sued. And the attorney general for the state, who was a Democrat at that point, actually defended the maps. And that's his job under state law. He said, you know, I may not like these maps, but I'm, I'm going to defend them. There were years of litigation. Mm-hmm. I'm not even going to go through it all. It went up to the Supreme Court and back down to the lower court mm-hmm. uh, before eventually the lower court said, yes, these are racial gerrymanders. They're bad. They're unconstitutional. We're going to commission much better, fairer maps and replace them. Uh, and that's exactly what the court did. So at that point, the attorney general of Virginia, a guy named Mark Herring, mm-hmm. uh, said, okay, I'm not going to appeal this again because I've done my job. I've defended these maps since 2014. They're bad maps. They're racist. I'm done. So these new maps can stay and Virginia will finally have competitive elections. At that point, the House of Delegates, controlled by Republicans still, came in and said, okay, well, if you're not going to appeal this, we're going to appeal it ourselves. Tried to appeal the lower court ruling up to SCOTUS again, and this time by a 5-4 to four decision written by Justice Ginsburg, SCOTUS said, sorry, Virginia House of Delegates, you don't have standing to challenge these new maps. You're not really injured in any constitutional sense. So they basically threw out the case, and that means the new maps can stay and will be used in the upcoming 2019 election. Now, I want 
want to talk about that. Uh, actually, it is important, and that that standing issue and the strange bedfellows there, uh, and why that may have happened. But uh, to be clear, but before we get there, to be clear, this is a case of racial gerrymandering, yes. which the Supremes have long held can be uh, seen as unconstitutional, as opposed to partisan gerrymandering which they have not made a determination on and about which we're waiting with bated breath at this point on on two different cases of extreme partisan gerrymandering by Republicans on uh, U.S. House districts across the state of North Carolina and by Democrats in one congressional district in Maryland. That ruling expected any day now is likely to be, well, to be very different. Uh, correct? Fair to say? Well, you know, I'm afraid to make any predictions here. I don't know what the outcome is going to be, obviously. Um, and I think there is a possibility of a narrow victory against partisan gerrymandering in that case, but a stronger likelihood that the Supreme Court's going to lock out partisan gerrymandering claims forever, which would be very, very disappointing because partisan gerrymandering is really just as evil as racial gerrymandering. And in fact, there's a lot of overlap between the two because of how closely partisan citizenship tracks with race here mm-hmm. in the United States. Um, but yeah, we don't know how those cases have come out or are going to come out. So we have to be sure we're talking about racial gerrymandering here. That is illegal. It has been. It will always be illegal. Partisan gerrymandering is still the big question mark. That's the big question mark. That's what we're going to find out. And, and of course, it's, there's those two states, uh, North Carolina and Maryland, which are, are pending now before the court. But there's a whole bunch of other partisan uh, gerrymanders that have been struck down by lower courts around the country that are sort of waiting on the results from the Supreme Court in those other two uh, partisan gerrymandering cases. So this is going to have a big effect. Also, Mark, the decision in Virginia is important because the legislature to be elected in Virginia this November will be the one that is likely to approve the new maps for the state drawn after the 2020 census. That will be in effect for the state legislative and U.S. House seats for the next decade. And that's also important to keep in mind for all voters, frankly, in 2020, when all of the other states will also uh, set their uh, state legislature. Those uh, those are the ones who are going to determine these seats and these maps for the next decade. I, I, you know, I tried to underscore that in 2010. I I, I don't know that the message got out. It's really important, is it, it not? It was, yeah, it was certainly important to Republicans who launched an entire multi-million dollar operation to seize uh, state legislatures just so that they would have control over redistricting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if our memories can stretch back far enough, this is why the 2009 election in Virginia was so disappointing, mm-hmm. because that gave the, you know, that was in the middle of the big Tea Party revolt and all that nonsense, right? Mm-hmm. That's what gave Virginian Republicans the majority that they then used to create this racial gerrymander. So we're now seeing the flip side of that. In 2019, it seems Democrats are going to sweep the legislature. They will be in control of redistricting in the next cycle. Uh, and, you know, if Democrats get lucky or Democratic voters get smart, that trick will be repeated across the country in the 2020 election, uh, because otherwise we'll face another 10 years of just brutal Republican gerrymandering. Yeah, and if you look at all of these, uh, for example, these uh, abortion cases, uh, laws that are being, uh, restrictions that are being passed across the country now, that is much of it, thanks in no small part, to the way many of these states were gerrymandered uh, over uh, 
the past decade. So exactly right. This stuff matters. All right, to the uh, very strange bedfellows I mentioned, uh, please explain this to me uh, if you can. Writing for the majority on this case, you mentioned Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was supported by Justices Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan. That is not a surprise, but she was also joined by Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch. Which mm-hmm. is a surprise. And that also, by the way, left the uh, otherwise usually progressive Stephen Breyer siding with the rest of the court's right wingers here in, uh, in the dissent. What's going on here, Mark Joseph Stern? So my guess here is that the conservatives and the liberals in the majority had different reasons for the way they voted. I think that the liberals probably think that the House is just not injured by a fair electoral map, uh, and that's basically what, what RBG wrote. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a real definition of a constitutional injury. It's not just something you're unhappy with or a ruling that's gone against you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has to injure you in a factual way um, that you know burdens your rights or your liberties, and that just didn't happen here. All that the House has to do now is hold elections under a non-racist map. And so to RBG, Kagan, and Sotomayor, that's just not an injury. That doesn't give the House a reason to walk into the Supreme Court and protest. Uh, For Gorsuch and Thomas, I think it's more complicated. I think that they are generally against this idea of legislative standing. Uh, Think about how the United States House of Representatives has intervened in all this Mm -hmm. litigation, right? There is a kind of conservative principle uh, that generally legislators should legislate they shouldn't be suing on behalf of their bodies. Uh, and so I think they have a, a kind of long-standing commitment, or I hope, that they have a commitment to saying, legislatures, you need to stay out of these fights. If you're fighting against an attorney general, whatever, if you're fighting against the governor, that's fine. But houses of legislatures, particularly just one chamber, mm-hmm. uh, should not have standing to march into court and try to vindicate their interests. If they're unhappy, they can pass a bill. It's not their job to be filing lawsuits. Well, then, you know what? Credit is uh, deserved, I think, if that's true for uh, Clarence Thomas and and Neil Gorsuch here, because I do worry with all of the other uh, right wingers on the other side that, in fact, yes, they were trying to. This is the sense that I get. I want your thoughts that they were trying to reserve the ability for. You know, we see this around the country where that you have a, the, the still GOP controlled Michigan legislature, which may want to challenge decisions by the state's new Democratic governor and Democratic uh, attorney general there. We saw a similar dynamic when the GOP House had interceded in a number of uh, what were they, civil rights cases, health care cases. I can't recall uh, where yes, they disagreed exactly. with uh, President Obama's attorney general, Eric Holder. So do you get the sense that the minority there is trying to say, no, we want to reserve the ability for these, uh, well, Republican legislatures to be able to challenge uh, attorneys general? I think that's a, a, a real possibility, but I will say if that is the case, then it's difficult to make this go in a liberal or conservative direction, because, of course, all kinds of states are divided between mm-hmm. governors and houses uh, of the legislature, and you can easily imagine a reverse scenario, you know? Say uh, some federal judge appointed by Trump strikes down Medicaid expansion, 
and the attorney general refuses to defend it because he's a Republican, say the Democratic House wants to come in and say, no, 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 we want to vindicate our Medicare expansion bill, Medicaid expansion bill, then this decision could make that more difficult, though not impossible, because every one of these cases is distinct. So it's hard to ascribe a consistent political valence here. Uh, I hope that the justices do vote consistently in these cases, because otherwise it'll look like they're simply manipulating standing doctrine to get the political results they want. Uh, fair enough, though I do think it, it does feel, maybe it just feels this way to me, it does feel like it tends to be the Republican legislatures who pull this particular trick. Um, but, yeah. uh, but you're right, it could go both ways. All right, Double Jeopardy, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Neil Gorsuch teamed up, uh, sort of, on, on uh, dissenting in this 7-2 uh, case. They were both together in the minority here, Gamble versus United States. What? Explain this case uh, quickly, if you can, and how it resulted in Ginsburg and Gorsuch, of all folks, finding themselves alone uh, together on the minority here. Yeah, so this is a tough but an interesting case, and this is, the facts kind of lay out the problem. There is a guy in Alabama who had a gun when he wasn't supposed to. He got caught. He got uh, convicted and sentenced in Alabama to a year in prison. Uh, and then the federal government came in and said, we don't think that's long enough for you to be in prison. They brought the exact same charges but brought him under federal law, convicted him in federal court, and added nearly three years to his sentence. Now, that might seem like a little bit of a problem, because uh, in the United States, we have this rule against double jeopardy, right? You cannot be tried for the exact same crime. If you get tried and acquitted, the prosecutors can't come back in and try you again. If you're convicted, the prosecutors can't intercept you when you're leaving prison and start you all over again with a new trial. But there is an exception to that rule. It is called the separate sovereigns exception. And all that means is that the states and the federal government both get separate bites at the apple. They both get to prosecute you for the exact same crime. And this has been extremely controversial and extremely, well, I think condemned by a lot of jurists, by a lot of scholars who say it's just totally out of keeping with what the framers intended. But on Monday, the court upheld it by a 7-2 to vote. And the court basically said, yeah, we think this is right. We think that states and the feds have a separate ability to prosecute you for the same crime. And besides that, we're not going to overturn 150 years of precedent. We only do that when it leads to a really conservative result, basically. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so the court upheld this exception. And it means that you or me or everybody else is still subject to being tried for the exact same crime, so long as it's a different set of prosecutors who do it. Now, what of the argument, however, from uh, civil rights folks who have said, well, basically, in certain states, they have, you know, decried failed prosecution of racial crimes, that maybe they, the, the state AG didn't have their heart in it, and they see a second bite at the apple from the federal government as necessary to help even that playing field? Yeah, absolutely. There are definitely two sides to this argument, but I would point out um, that often when you do have federal civil rights enforcement when, when a state prosecution has failed, the federal law is different and targets different aspects of the crime mm -hmm. and would probably be exempt from double jeopardy anyway. So, for instance, if, if someone is murdered in Alabama on the basis of their race and they're simply, you know, the, the, the perpetrator simply prosecuted for a homicide, 
and then acquitted, the feds could still come in and charge that individual under a hate crime statute with different elements mm. of the crime that target, again, sort of different components of the underlying act. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that has historically been uh, an exemption from double jeopardy. It might not work every time, but I do think that in cases like the, the famous Rodney King affair, right, I do think that even if there were no exception to double jeopardy, that the federal government would be able to find civil rights statutes that cover different kinds of conduct or cover conduct in different ways mm. and would still be able to bring a prosecution even if that person had already been acquitted by the state. Even if that double jeopardy loophole from the Constitution was done away with. Exactly. Uh, and now Clarence Thomas, uh, who, who teamed up with Ruth Bader Ginsburg a couple of years ago to call for a fresh examination of this issue, Thomas voted to keep it in place after all, to not overturn it. And you you noted that both Ruth ba- in your uh, coverage at Slate.com that both Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Neil Gorsuch in the uh, in, in the minority here dissenting that they both have a bit of a libertarian streak. Clarence Thomas asked for a fresh examination of this issue. He got it. And then he ended up not going with the minority here. He stuck with the majority that kept the loophole in place. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's a little disingenuous for him to say, oh, well, I just sort of changed my mind. He, he pretended like he was really sort of open to absolutely just overturning this exception a few years ago. And now he says, oh, well, I was just curious, you know, just kind of wanted to hear what was going on. Now we've gotten the briefing, so Mm. I've decided it's correct. I I think that Thomas is getting increasingly conservative in his old age. I think he used to have a more pronounced libertarian streak and skepticism of prosecutors, and I think he's leaving that behind the older that he gets, the longer he stays on the court. Regardless, he used his opinion to launch into this crazy attack on precedent that was clearly once again laying the groundwork for an attack on cases like Roe versus Wade, establishing a right to abortion access, uh, establishing a right to marriage equality, Mm -hmm. uh, and he basically said, look, I think that this exception should still exist, but anytime I think an old decision is wrong, I'm going to vote to overturn it because that's my job. I don't believe in stare decisis. I don't believe in respect for precedent. My job is to burn the whole place to the ground if I think that's what the Constitution requires. Now, the uh, the big loser here, uh, ultimately, may be Donald Trump's former campaign chair, Paul Manafort, who, even if pardoned now by Donald Trump, he would still have to face similar New York state fraud charges under this decision from uh, from SCOTUS, correct? Yeah, yeah. And even if New York charges don't work out, because New York state actually has its own extra robust protections against double jeopardy, uh, Virginia and Illinois could both absolutely bring charges and they could bring them under separate state laws that uh, would definitely apply to Manafort that would not run into any problem under state or federal law. So Manafort and all of Trump's cronies who were hoping to get off scot-free with a pardon, they're all really sunk now because if they get pardoned, a bunch of different states that their criminal conduct touched could now jump in with prosecutions. And even if they're prosecuting him for identical crimes now, because it's under state law, they could get away with it. So there you go. There's an upside uh, to that ruling. Uh, Mark Joseph Stern, I got to take a quick break here. Uh, can, can you stick with me for just a few more minutes? I want to get a very short segment to ask you about 
what the hell is going to go on with this census question, uh, given all the new information that we have, and uh, what other uh, big decisions you're looking forward to in the next couple of weeks. Can you stick around for a quick sec? Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Uh, we will be right back with the great Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate and thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with our closing few minutes here today with Mark Joseph Stern, legal reporter from Slate.com on the, uh, the first tranche of Supreme Court rulings coming down this week with more to come. Mark uh, Joseph Stern, here's what I wanted to get your thoughts on very quickly. Uh, you have been covering this issue of the census question regarding citizenship very closely over the past few months. You were in the uh, in the courtroom at the Supreme Court when they argued the case, oral arguments. Now we have new information that has been coming in over the past couple of weeks and specifically just late last Friday that the GOP's now deceased gerrymandering expert, Thomas Hoffler, I think is how you pronounce his name, he had evidence on his hard drive from one of his computers that was obtained by his, his estranged daughter after his death that revealed that not only had he studied the matter of adding a question to the U.S. Census uh, on citizenship and, and found that it would harm Democrats and minorities and would help Republicans and white voters. But he had also spoken with the now U.S. Census chief of staff about this. And the DOJ and Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, they all lied about it to Congress and in court proceedings. That has now come out thanks to what we find on this hard drive. This has all come out since the court heard oral arguments earlier this year when, as we talked to you afterwards, I think you were not encouraged about what the uh, justices were going to decide. But uh, what now? How, how can the Supreme Court possibly find a way to overturn all the lower courts to allow this citizenship question on the 2020 census, given what we now know that has happened since oral arguments? I don't even understand how they the court can deal with this case at this point. Yeah, I mean, so what the court really should have done after that first bombshell from the Hoffler files was put forward is sent the case back down to district court for more fact-finding, more evidence, and said, we can't decide it on the record before us. There's too much new information. They, they needed a fresh look. But the court didn't do that, which is not encouraging. It, it definitely suggests to me that the five conservatives have already voted to uphold the citizenship question and that nothing's going to get in the way of them uh, just upholding it, allowing it to move forward. So right now, the action is really in these district courts, one in Maryland, one in New York, where the plaintiffs in these cases are trying to force the Trump officials who participated in this, both the crime and the cover-up, so to speak, to face real consequences. They're asking for sanctions 
uh, against some of these Trump officials. They are asking uh, for new hearings uh, to prove a conspiracy in order to suppress minority rights. Uh, they are trying to get this information down in the open, uh, even though they know it's probably not going to block the citizenship question. It will at least force some of the bad guys uh, to sort of answer for their misdeeds. Uh, and that's what's going on at this stage. I wish all of this had come out a year ago, but alas, it's too late. And I'm not really convinced it would have uh, changed the conservative justices' votes anyway. Well, well we're talking about, uh, you know, 10 years. This is going to be uh, in effect, essentially, if this question is added to the census. It's going to have a, a dramatic effect in all 50 states for voting, for the way resources are allocated. And I know there's an issue with, I think, the, uh, the deadline to begin printing the 2020 census is just like coming up in a couple of weeks, so they may not have had time to send it back down, rehear it, have it come back next year. But I, 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 it just seems like they can't make a decision at this point without because they don't have all of the information to do so. You know, I think that the liberal justices' dissents will point all of that out and and explain it in clear and angry terms. And I think that conservatives are just, unfortunately, probably going to ignore it. Uh, Again, extremely unfortunate. It is not going to instill confidence in our judicial system at all. It is going to be very, very ugly. Uh, Mark, uh, what other very ugly or just big decisions coming up uh, do you uh, look forward to or dread or fear the most in the weeks ahead? And I hope to be talking to you about them as they come out. Well, we've got the big political gerrymandering case that we just talked about. We've got some interesting free speech cases uh, about uses of naughty words in trademarks that should be fun. We won't be able to say them on the air, but we can (laughs) basically spell them out. Um, And we've got some interesting but concerning decisions about government regulations taking of property for the public good that are flying under the radar but are going to be a big deal for this administration, I think, uh, as well as some about deference to administrative agencies, basically how much power Trump can amass in the presidency uh, before he leaves office. That's the big question here, uh, and a bunch of little cases that fly under the radar are going to either help or hurt him over the next few weeks. And that's all going to come down uh, in time to let the justices get to their summer homes by uh, the beginning of July, right? Exactly right. We couldn't have them spending the summer in D.C. That's just impossible. That would be outrageous. Uh, But you will, I suspect, and we will be talking to you there as these come out. Mark Joseph Stern, he covers law, the court system, Supreme Court, and much more for Slate.com. And uh, helpfully here on the broadcast for the next few weeks. Mark Joseph Stern, we will talk to you again. Oh, and people should find your work at Slate.com and on the Twitters at MJS underscore D.C. There we go. Thanks, Mark. We'll talk to you soon. Always a pleasure. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, thanks also to my producer, Desi Doyen. Yep. And to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it for free anytime and share it with friends and family at bradblog.com. And while you're there, please consider a donation at bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. We rely only on you. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, find, follow, and share all that we do. You will find me there as The Brad Blog. That is it until we meet again tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. 
Oh, oh, oh.